A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 15 Marxism Metastasizes Part 2 Postmodernism Takes Critical Theory Global The First Section For Cult and Postmodernism Meanwhile, in post-World War II France, a new school of thought was emerging from the shadows of the Marxist-Leninist horrors of Stalin's Soviet Union. Leading figures of this school were Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. As with the Frankfurt School, Foucault retained the essence of Marxist dialectical materialism while addressing social and cultural issues far beyond the boundaries of Marx's class warfare categories. His true radicalism, however, wasn't limited to using a dialectical analysis for deconstruction of society, as had Marx and the Frankfurt School. He questioned the very basis of science and the existence of universal absolutes. True to the essential gospel of materialism, Foucault believed that knowledge and social institutions were the product of power relationships in society, not of a working out of relationships between creator and creation. For his part, Derrida was particularly interested in the role of language in this process. He pointed out that dominant classes or groups have a larger role than weaker groups in establishing the prevailing language of society, thereby reinforcing the power status quo. This explains the left's persistent and oppressive efforts to get everyone to use its politically correct terminology. As with the Marxist dialectic, these theories led inevitably to the conclusion that power structures must be broken down for change to occur. This, in turn, led inevitably to violent revolution, since those with power are always reluctant to relinquish their positions of privilege. By rejecting the absolutes of truth and science, Foucault had no reference point to justify his prescriptions for social change, no starting point for cogent argumentation. Instead, he depended on nothing more than his own instincts and insights to argue for the changes he wanted to see take place. Given this perfectly unscientific approach, it is truly remarkable that much of the social science taught in Western universities today is based on Foucault's theories and assertions. New section, an amoral theory from an immoral man. Noam Chomsky, one of the most radical leftist academics in America, was stunned during a 1971 televised debate with Foucault to find that he had no belief in science or absolutes whatsoever. Specifically, Foucault disagreed with the possibility of a fixed human nature. He also rejected the notion that human reason is the basis for justice, claiming there's no universal basis for a concept of justice. 
Following the debate, Chomsky expressed his amazement at Foucault's rejection of a possibility for the existence of a universal morality, and I quote, He struck me as completely amoral. I'd never met anyone who was so totally amoral. I liked him personally. It's just that I couldn't make sense of him. It's as if he was from a different species or something, end quote. If science and reason are not the basis for Foucault's theories, what is? It would seem nothing more than his own subjective experiences and ideas. How then is it possible for Foucault to be the last word in the social sciences today? And how is it possible to have a rational debate with anyone who embraces Foucault's theories? Finally, if Foucault accepts no moral absolutes, doesn't that make him immoral by most civilized standards of morality, rather than merely amoral? His personal life of sexual promiscuity and his advocacy for homosexual, underage and pedophile sex would seem to indicate so. Despite basing their assertions on this fundamentally flawed foundation for the theories of Foucault and postmodernism in general, Faithful followers of the French theorists very often get extremely agitated if you do not accept their facts and their language. Most peculiar of all, very often leftists of the postmodernist school claim that science is on their side and that those with rival ideas are anti-science. With a straight face, they tell us to follow the science. Thus, if you question the left's assertions, that gender and biological sex are not necessarily related. You are a bad person who refuses to accept the science of the left because you are a heteronormative bigot and probably a racist to boot. Or if you don't believe that global warming will become irreversible and destroy the planet in 12 years, unless we throw trillions of taxpayer dollars at Green New Deal programs, you are likely to be labeled a science denier who refuses to accept the verdict of a worldwide consensus of scientists. In this deeply flawed parallel universe, truth itself is deemed to be a function of language and the power relationships operating in society. Truth belongs to no one, certainly not God, and is forever incomplete and imperfect, inviting the disciples of occult and Derrida to keep hacking away at it in the name of progress. Today, Foucault is the most influential thinker in the social sciences, and his approach is employed to deconstruct, criticize, and destroy an ever wider range of traditional beliefs and social institutions. This school of critical theories is now called postmodernism. It is responsible for many of the academic programs that together make up the dominant leftist view of the world and the progressive ideas that spill onto the streets and into schools, media and corporations. They are also increasingly the basis for government policies. Some of the specific postmodernist theories, as they are used today, are summarized and commented on in this chapter and the next. Some clearly build on Marxist or Frankfurt School theories, others are additions. We can't blame Marx for transgenderism or anti-racism, but we do hold him largely responsible for the critical theory approach that produced them. Taken as a whole, 
postmodernism amounts to a materialist movement that can only be described as deceitful and evil. It is deceitful in hoodwinking good people with false promises of justice and virtue, and it is evil in its very destruction of the values and norms upon which good societies are based. Postmodernism threatens the very foundations of civilization and must be exposed and excised from our culture and world. A new section, Anti-Religion Theory. The leftist worldview asserts that religion is a largely negative force in history and society and responsible for shaping language that has considerable influence on both. This sterile, arm's-length view of religion keeps it remote from hearts and minds and safely in academia, where it can readily be dissected and relegated to abstract obscurity. All that remains is a legacy of ideas and language that are seen by Marxists and postmodernists as obstacles to progress. Marx and Engels articulated this view with their description of religion as an opiate. In other words, as something that people indulge in to avoid facing the realities of life. As most modern democracies are based on a secular state, that is, a state without an official religion, leftists with an anti-religion agenda can use secularism to justify pushing religion out of all public institutions altogether. Prayer is banned in public schools. Religious symbols are removed from the public square. Faith and devotion are scoffed at. Within the secularized world of industrialized states, there has been a steady drop in the percentage of people who believe in a deity or the primacy of spiritual values. Those who worship and believe faith should be a basis for life and a source of values for government decision-making are often met with disdain and mockery. But the religious impulse is deeply rooted in human nature. As children of God, our spiritual DNA connects us to divine love, truth and purpose. We have shown how this impulse has been co-opted by Marxism, which replaces the Creator and the Kingdom of Heaven with Marx and a communist utopia. In postmodernism, religion is a central player in traditional societies and therefore a prime target for deconstruction and destruction. Furthermore, morality is viewed not as the basis for personal and social virtue, but as an arbitrary code of conduct imposed by religion for religion's sake, not the well-being of people. As such, religion-based morality is part of the oppression by dominant social forces over ordinary people. Foucault himself had rebelled against Christian morality, especially in his personal life as a gay man, which explains, in part at least, his criticism of the church and its rules for life. In addition to being a gay activist who left the French Communist Party because of its anti-gay policies, Foucault was a vocal proponent of adult child sex and pedophilia. The thrust of critical theories is clearly anti-religious on purpose. After all, in the West at least, Judeo-Christian precepts are reflected in everything from legal codes to social mores and therefore removing religion from society undermines the whole social edifice. This is exactly the postmodernist objective. 
It is a movement that aims to undercut the pillars upon which modern society has been built, plunging it into a state of chaos that is uncoupled from religious or scientific absolutes. Although many good people are drawn to postmodernism because they are truly concerned about injustices in the world, destruction for destruction's sake is a dangerous path to follow. Postmodernism offers no credible alternative to religion, only destruction of what is. What improvements to human understanding and life can postmodernism claim? It produces bitter and resentful people who see themselves as victims and are eager to criticize the world they inherited while insisting that you agree with their analysis and their descriptive language. They are not happy. They bring no joy to the world, and their political correctness gets ever more extreme as they seek to cancel all voices of faith and the love of family and nation. Anti-religion theory seeks to rip from history and society that which is eternal and transcendent, the very heart of human existence. Without these, meaning and purpose and the basis for morality are lost. In a world of conflicting ideologies, religion always points in one direction, towards what is transcendent and good. It is the most important force shaping family and society. This is not to say that religion needs no renewal. It surely does, constantly. But because of its materialism, postmodernism cannot reform religion. Its diagnoses might be accurate or relevant, but its prescriptions are deleterious and often lethal. New section. Marxism perverse Christianity in liberation theology. One subtle and harmful effort of the left has been to attempt to reconcile Christianity with Marxism by suggesting that Marxism offers a program of social transformation that translates Christian idealism into practical action. The best-known such program is Liberation Theology, which became popular in Latin America during the 1960s, following the liberalization of Catholicism under Vatican II. The argument for this theory is that the Church has not succeeded in addressing social ills, and therefore it should adopt Marxist theories of oppression and injustice as the basis for its own social programs. Liberation Theology condemns capitalism as nothing more than an economic system based on greed, thereby naturally aligning the church with socialist agendas and regimes. This focus on social activism may seem laudatory, and to the extent that it enables people of faith to concern themselves with the less fortunate on earth, it is. However, it can just as easily be a disservice to believers. Liberation theology encourages believers to see activism as the primary responsibility of Christians rather than doing the work of cultivating a life of faith in order to become a better person and serve others. What's more, the atheism of Marxism always makes it incompatible with religious belief. Marxist revolution does not lead to improvement of society, but to the exact opposite, violence and misery. Few would disagree that a life of faith should translate into a life of caring for others, but believers should not be tricked by the alluring platitudes of Marxist propaganda 
into endorsing an atheistic program of violent revolution and oppression. A somewhat similar attempt at Marxist subversion of Protestant Christianity in America can be found on the CPUSA website, published as a PowerPoint presentation in early 2021. Titled Understanding and Confronting Christian Fascism, the structure and danger of the white evangelical movement. This piece of propaganda is produced by Dr. Paul Scholl, a medical doctor who identifies himself as a Marxist and a Christian and an ordained minister. It targets in particular the evangelical churches in America, although it doesn't spare the Catholics. Believing that the goal of evangelicals is to create a fascist theocracy Shaw makes his statement, and I quote, The opiate of the masses has become toxic, and it will take a massive, united front against Christian fascism to defeat it, end quote. If he believes Christianity is the opiate of the masses, isn't he simply a Marxist and not a minister of Christ? A new section, erroneously conflating Marxism with Buddhism. Incredibly, Tibet's Dalai Lama, whose Buddhist religion has been ruthlessly suppressed by the Chinese Communist Party, and who has had to live in exile from his Tibetan homeland because of China's brutal occupation, has spoken positively of Marxism. During a visit to France in 1993, he said, Of all the modern economic theories, the economic system of Marxism is founded on moral principles, while capitalism is concerned only with gain and profitability. Marxism is concerned with the distribution of wealth on an equal basis and the equitable utilization of the means of production. It is also concerned with the fate of the working classes, that is the majority, as well as with the fate of those who are underprivileged and in need and Marxism cares about the victims of minority-imposed exploitation. For those reasons, the system appeals to me, and it seems fair. The failure of the regime in the former Soviet Union was, for me, not the failure of Marxism, but the failure of totalitarianism. For this reason, I still think of myself as half Marxist, half Buddhist." End quote. This is a remarkable statement for one of the most revered religious leaders in the world today. To say that Marxism is founded on moral principles demonstrates a profound lack of understanding. What are the moral principles of Marxism? What is their source? Indeed, it is Marx's failure to recognize transcendent moral principles and virtues that makes his theory so thoroughly violent and destructive. Marx's atheistic, anti-religion and anti-family beliefs are at the heart of communist ideology and its history of violent revolution and tyranny. These beliefs explain communist China's brutal oppression of the people of Tibet and refusal to give them their freedom. Does the Dalai Lama not see that? While Marxism and postmodernism may well identify real deficiencies in religion, they are no better qualified to improve religion than a wrecking ball is to improve the condition of a house in need of repair. In truth, the best they can do is to inadvertently reveal the inadequacies of their own theories by applying them as alternatives to religion. 
Indeed, this has been the pattern of leftist movements. The socialist and communist regimes of the last century were infinitely worse than any society based on religion, and the behavior of liberated leftists today is characterized by hedonistic lifestyles that are personally and socially destructive. A new section, Denial of Science and Anti-Family Theory. Whereas Marx and Engels claimed the mantle of science for their theories, the postmodernists reject science as an absolute, believing it to be, along with all other knowledge, a product of language shaped by social forces over time. As we have noted, this evolution in leftist thinking enables postmodernists to dispense with the Marxist claim to scientific socialism, to claim independence from Marxism, and to justify their positions purely on the basis of subjective criteria. In the postmodernist world, then, the traditional family is little more than a temporary ordering of human relations around the animalistic sexual urges of men and women. The sexual revolution advocated by Reich and other members of the Frankfurt School are now by truly radical theories of gender and sex have their root in Marxism. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx said that the family is an institution of the bourgeoisie and alien to the proletariat. I quote, The proletarian is without property. His relation to his wife and children has no longer anything in common with the bourgeois family relations. Modern industry labor, modern subjection to capital, the same in England as in France, in America as in Germany, has stripped him of every trace of national character. Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices, behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests." End quote. As we have shown, the denial of a biological basis for the existence of just two sexes strikes at the very root of our existence and the role of science. To deny this first principle of nature is to undermine the basis of modern science and to invalidate the human record that points to millennia of social development around nuclear families. The traditional human family, which provides nurture and protection to new life, is not only the most stable structure for multiplication of our kind, it is also the carrier of the knowledge and values on which societies are built. In its mature form, it is the best environment for a growing person to learn to love others and ultimately produce children of their own. It is only ignorance of our original purpose and the design of nature that explains advocacy for destruction of the family. As we discussed in chapter 2, nature itself demonstrates no confusion over the basic biological order of sexual and social organization, albeit within the parameters of a very wide diversity of species. Procreation and multiplication are achieved through the interaction of male with female, stamen with pistol. In the atom itself, order is maintained through the relationship between positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons. This order in itself points to an overarching purpose for all existence, enabling all creation to contribute to an ever-expanding universe. A new section, Withering Away of the Human Race. 
Birth rates in most developed countries are plummeting. For a world that has long worried about overpopulation, this is an unexpected new challenge. The United Nations projects that by the end of this century, global population will level off at about 11 billion people. However, the demographic trajectory is extremely uneven, with the vast majority of countries expected to see rapid population declines while a few grow dramatically. Significantly, China's current 1.4 billion people population is expected to be cut in half by 2100. Africa, by contrast, is expected to triple its current 1.3 billion population to an estimated 4.3 billion, with Nigeria projected to become the second largest country in the world after India. These projections are, of course, based on changes in lifestyles which produce changes in birth rates. When the birth rate drops below 2.1 children per woman, the population begins to shrink. If this downward trajectory is sustained, it tends to lead to an acceleration in decline. The global trend is for families in economically developed countries to have fewer children, in part so that they can sustain a desirable standard of living, but also because government policies often disincentivize childbearing. Furthermore, the trend of fewer children being welcomed into the world is one consequence of the anti-family theories of Marxism and Neo-Marxism, as they encourage sexual self-indulgence in relationships that do not produce children. If the trend of developed countries losing population continues, we can expect that Africa too will begin to experience population decline as it progresses economically. Many governments already have programs to encourage childbearing. These typically include everything from tax breaks to direct payments to women willing to have more children. Ultimately, the driving force to form families and expand populations will be the love and inborn desire of a man and a woman to have children. Whatever the ideal birth rate is for the world, it can best be achieved by policies that are unequivocally pro-family, that address the economic pressures on a family and that teach the personal and social benefits of parenthood and family. A new section, Queer Theory, Gender Studies and Transgenderism. The essence of queer theory is that there is no God-made natural order for sexual relations within a family. Rather, that all sexual needs and desires are natural and traditional families are restrictive and oppressive structures that have no relevance in today's world. Thus, morality takes on a completely different meaning. It is based on acceptance of whatever sexual relations a person chooses as their own. There are no absolutes. The radical lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ agenda is to get society as a whole to accept and normalize this perverted concept of morality. The idea that sex and gender are not necessarily aligned has been pursued using postmodernist deconstruction and criticism of the traditional family. Foucault himself obviously developed his theories in part to rationalize his own immoral lifestyle. As with Marx, who all his adult life sought to justify his resentments against society and desire for violent revolution, 
Foucault's self-indulgence was a purely subjective basis for his theories that was totally inconsistent with a scientific approach to knowledge. Gender dysphoria results from a person believing his or her gender is other than what their biological sex says it is. Thus, for example, a woman can believe she is actually a man in a woman's body. Today, this transgender theory has resulted in a whole new movement seeking what's called gender equality, that is, insisting that people have a right to determine their own gender and that other people should accept their determination and treat them accordingly, even though this contradicts biology. Thus, a man who believes he is actually a woman trapped in a man's body has the right to be called by feminine pronouns and must be allowed to use women's bathrooms. In a fascistic twist, a number of governments and institutions now prescribe punishments for those who do not conform with these dysphoric pronoun demands or do not allow men to use women's bathrooms, or vice versa. Meanwhile, men who self-identify as women are being allowed to compete against biological women in sports, perhaps the most illogical and frankly insane outcome of gender theories that are not even remotely attached to scientific truth. In sports, practically all the abuse of transgenderism favors biological male athletes who enjoy natural physical advantages. In the upside-down world of leftist values, media, corporations and politicians are urged to support these policies and punish any person or institution that does not allow biological men to compete against women. More sinisterly, transgenderism has become a movement within the sexual revolution that encourages immoral people to play God. Children who are confused about their sexual identities are encouraged in this confusion by counselors and transgender activists who promote the notion that gender dysphoria is normal and it can be solved through sex change treatments. Irresponsible doctors prescribe hormonal treatments that encourage the dysphoria and finally recommend surgery to align physical characteristics with a patient's believed gender identity. Such drastic, sterilizing surgery can never truly be reversed. The results have been catastrophic. Many young children and teens have been advised all too hastily into making such sex change decisions. It is not unusual for them to struggle with their male or female identity, but once they have embarked on hormone therapy or surgery, they are doomed to live under the shadow of that decision for the rest of their lives. It's not surprising then that suicide rates are astronomical among transgender children, as demonstrated by the following 2018 data from a study by Pediatrics, the official journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I quote, Nearly 14% of adolescents reported a previous suicide attempt. Disparities by gender identity in suicide attempts were found. Female to male adolescents reported the highest rate of attempted suicide, 50.8%, followed by adolescents who identified as not exclusively male or female, 41.8%. Male to female adolescents, 29.9%, questioning adolescents, 27.9%, female adolescents, 17.6%,
and male adolescents, 9.8%. Identifying as non-heterosexual exacerbated the risk for all adolescents except for those who did not exclusively identify as male or female, i.e. non-binary. For transgender adolescents, no other socio-demographic characteristic was associated with suicide attempts. End quote. Perhaps more alarming, the pediatric study found that, and I quote again, female to different gender and female to male adolescents report higher rates of suicide ideation, i.e. 73.9% and 62.5% respectively, and previous suicide attempts 46.4% and 18.4% respectively, compared with all other groups, end quote. In other words, almost three quarters of all female adolescents who have undergone a sex change have thought about committing suicide, and almost half have actually attempted suicide. Considering these alarming and heartbreaking statistics, how can anyone advocate for a sex change to solve the experience of sexual dysphoria? Half of all adolescents who have gone through sex change procedures have tried to commit suicide. Is this activity not tantamount to murder in the guise of transgender advocacy? The perpetrators and enablers of this cruel and inhuman practice should be held to account for the consequences of their words and deeds. Tellingly, these erroneous theories on gender are making great headway in many societies that have lost or are losing their religious culture. Thus, in cities around the world, Gay Pride Week celebrates the new morality. LGBTQ people parade in the streets their rainbow signs displayed everywhere, with businesses and institutions encouraged to show their support for the cause. Many places of worship have been co-opted into championing the LGBTQ agenda. During Gay Pride Week celebrations, and sometimes continuously, these places of worship display rainbow signs and pro-gay slogans to show support for the LGBTQ people and organizations. This surrender of traditional values by religious groups is due in part to the spread of homosexuality within the Church, especially in the Catholic Church, which does not permit marriage for priests and has a dark history of homosexuality and pedophilia in its seminaries and among its clergy. A new section, Radical Feminism, White Patriarchy and Toxic Masculinity. In its first wave, women's liberation was about women gaining the right to vote, to hold office, to get equal pay, and generally to be treated the same as men under the law. In America, this first wave feminism followed close on the heels of the Civil War and the constitutional changes that ended slavery, giving African Americans the same rights as whites. The rise of neo-Marxist and postmodernist theories of race and gender, however, have inevitably led to a feminist movement that goes much further. As with anti-racism, women's liberation and the radical feminist movement have become a great deal more aggressive, envisioning a world that inverts male domination by instituting policies that favor women over men. Thus, radical feminist movements are no longer satisfied with equal treatment for women, 
They insist that discrimination against women can only be solved by women receiving preferential treatment through discrimination against men. This is, of course, a sexist policy that is not likely to foster peace and goodwill between the sexes. As with all Marxist derivative theories, and especially postmodernism, deconstruction is based on identifying the cause of the problem within society, isolating it, and then destroying it. In this case, the left has identified what they call white patriarchy and toxic masculinity as the sources of injustice to women and people of color. In other words, simply being male and white makes you toxic and guilty of anti-woman bias and racism. To rectify the wrongs of the past, white males are singled out from among all other groups in society, condemned for the presumed injustices they have perpetrated, and punished by stripping them of their traditional roles and privileges. Ironically, this analysis in itself is necessarily sexist and racist in that it assumes white men are prejudiced against women and people of color solely because they are male and white. You can't solve the problem of sexism with more sexism or racism with more racism. Thus the approach of the left only makes the situation worse. It does not eliminate negative sexist or racist resentment and bitterness. It deepens and broadens their poisonous influence in society. Do the radical feminists really believe that attacking men on the basis of their sex and color will create a less sexist and less racist world? Of course not. The whole point of the leftist agenda is to divide people against one another so that existing social institutions will collapse, making way for them to take power. Nevertheless, to a large extent, the roles and contributions of men and women in history have been determined by their biological differences. Men are generally larger and stronger, making them better able to hunt, cultivate the earth, fell trees, cut stones for buildings, dig ditches, build homes, and fix things when they break. And they make more powerful warriors to defend families, communities, and nations. Women complement these qualities, giving birth to children, nurturing their growth, guiding their development, and managing the home environment. In today's professional world, women excel, for example, in education and healthcare, in the legal professions and counseling. Other natural skills and capabilities often make women particularly adept at employing technology to good advantage. And do they really want to take from men the jobs of plumber, electrician, mechanic, laborer, and garbage collector? Most important, however, in the realm of mind and spirit, men and women contribute equally to life and family, to the creation of beauty and goodness. From the creator's parental point of view, men and women are of equal value, which is why in a union of love, they can experience mutual joy, pleasure and satisfaction. The natural differences between men and women do not detract from the achievement of this goal, they make it possible. Men and women are not intrinsically rivals, but partners who by design complement and complete each other. A new section, the right to infanticide. One of the most destructive theories of radical feminism 
is that children in the womb are not human beings, but merely extensions of the mother, appendages over which she has the right to choose life or death. This belief is only credible if you ignore the basics of creation and biology, namely that every baby has a father as well as a mother, and that women are endowed with a divine quality as co-creators of new life. The newborn emerges complete from its mother's womb and is an entirely new person who is completely dependent on the love and nurture of his parents, especially his mother. A number of animal species are known to kill and eat their own babies, including polar bears, cats, chimpanzees and rabbits. Witnessing this stirs a natural sense of disgust in us. How worse is it then when human beings kill their own progeny? Abortion has long been used to escape personal responsibility for unwanted children, especially in communist states where ideology dictates that a human being has no transcendent value. But the fact of killing a child in the womb is not an abstraction. It is an irreversible act of choice for which the mother is bound to experience repercussions. The extremes to which the pro-abortion movement has descended has been demonstrated recently by several states in America passing legislation that allows abortions up to the time of birth. In Virginia, State Delegate Kathy Tran introduced a bill in January 2019 that would allow abortions at any time during a pregnancy with the approval of a single doctor, a change from the current law requiring three doctors to consent. Governor Ralph Northam, a pediatrician, told WTOP Radio what would occur to a fetus under the bill, and I quote, When we talk about third trimester abortions, it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities. There may be a fetus that is non-viable. If a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated, if that's what the mother and the family desired, and then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. End quote. In other words, after a child is born, the mother and her doctor would discuss whether or not to kill it. The bill did not pass, despite its supporters insisting it was only for exceptional cases. The real point is that if a law permits a mother to kill her newborn child for any reason, in practice it can be used for all reasons. We should know better. We are created in the image of our Creator, with a spirit and body, and as parents we participate in the creation of new life. Every new life is a gift that should be treasured from conception and gestation in the womb through life on earth and into eternity. Being a mother is magnificent, a blessing of co-creatorship with God that has eternal value. Radical feminism's antipathy towards men and irreverence for life is a recipe for human misery, for women as much as for men. After all, the greatest joy in life derives from love experience within the family, between husband and wife, parents and children, and among siblings. This fact is demonstrated by the lifelong ties that bind members of families to one another.
Although humanity has not yet fulfilled the ideal or full potential of the family, it remains by far the most important and successful social institution in history. A new section. The real meaning of human rights. The left has used the concept of human rights as an absolute moral imperative against which societies and policies must be judged. But what is the basis for determining human rights? What, for example, are women's rights? Who can grant them? In a Marxist world, human rights are those granted by the dictatorship of the proletariat. In a critical theories world, human rights are subjective, meaning they are whatever the aggrieved believe them to be. Combined with atheistic revolutionary ideology, these views of human rights lead to criticism, intolerance, and suppression of those who disagree with your concept of morality. This is a dangerous attitude that breeds social and political conflicts and ultimately totalitarian government in which those in power impose their morality on all. From a religious point of view, without absolutes of good and evil, there are no moral absolutes and therefore no basis for determining human rights. The human sensibility of what is right and wrong comes from an original nature that is aware of these opposites. The purpose of religion is to help people become ever more attuned to this innate sensibility through the cultivation of conscience and to provide understanding and support for living an ever better life. Ultimately, this process of spiritual growth should lead to the full alignment of human morality with the absolute standard of divine morality. Even nature exhibits characteristics consistent with human morality. Consider, for example, the mutual benefit of symbiotic relationships compared with predatory, parasitic, or mutually destructive relationships. In fact, it is the notion that human rights are natural rights granted by the Creator and that governments exist to protect those rights that made America's founding significant and unique among nations. These natural rights were evoked in the Declaration of Independence and elaborated in the Constitution, especially the Bill of Rights. That these rights are not fully realized is because imperfect people inevitably create imperfect societies. Nevertheless, the formal recognition and inclusion of natural rights in founding and governing documents has been an incredibly important development in the human path towards a truly just and equitable society. Articulating shared aspirations is a critical first step in achieving them. We cannot hope to reach a goal that is not clearly understood and articulated. A new section, Radical Environmentalism. Just as the left has co-opted authentic, godly concern for justice and human rights to advance its radical agendas, it has also co-opted the God-given human concern for nature to further its radical environmentalist agenda to destroy capitalism and vastly increase the power of government. Any sensible person will agree that we should be good stewards of nature and that we need clean water and air, as well as wise policies for agriculture and economic development if we are to preserve the environment we need to sustain life. 
and any sensible person will acknowledge that there have been many human activities that have been extremely harmful to nature, such as deforestation, dumping chemicals into rivers, lakes and seas, and polluting the air with industrial and vehicle emissions. But most of these abuses have long since been addressed, at least in developed economies. London is no longer a grimy, soot-covered city spewing toxic fumes into the air and lethal chemicals into the Thames River. Just ask the fish. Realizing this, the left has transformed environmentalism from a virtuous movement of concern for the environment into a political movement serving a revolutionary agenda. The main focus of this new incarnation of environmentalism has been global warming, or more flexibly, climate change. Led by people with questionable to no scientific backgrounds, such as former Vice President Al Gore, climate doomsayers give us just 10 or 12 years before the environmental damage caused by humans is irreversible. Their solution? Governments must spend astronomical amounts to reduce carbon emissions and cool the planet. They insist this will work, although to date there's no evidence that government intervention makes any difference at all. When the decade passes and we find our world little changed, they make new prophecies that are even more terrifying than the previous round. In the meantime, scientists who doubt the scientific consensus on global warming are dismissed as climate deniers, a subbreed of Neanderthals, and have their research grants cancelled. As with so many leftist nostrums, a simple examination of facts throws their environmental theory into doubt. Among many reasons to question their so-called climate science is this. Scientists believe that there have been only four periods in the life of our planet during which ice covered parts or all of the earth, ice ages in other words, during the rest of its existence, the earth has been free of ice. How then can human activity be the primary cause, if a cause at all, for the disappearance of ice caps? And by the way, why is the absence of ice on earth considered such a grave threat to human existence? A much warmer and wetter climate would still be highly livable. Just ask the dinosaurs. To illustrate what the above science tells us, as recently as 18,000 years ago, during the last ice age, the Wisconsin ice sheet was as much as two miles in depth over parts of North America. New York City was covered with a layer of ice estimated at over 2,000 feet thick, deep enough to bury the Freedom Tower today. Where did all that ice go? There have been no SUVs pumping out global warming emissions in the intervening millennia. And if human activity didn't melt the ice, why would we impoverish our planet now through confiscatory taxes to fund the trillions of dollars in global warming mitigation that the left wants us to spend? Only a love of big, all-controlling government can explain this leftist obsession. Climate change activism is a deceitful appropriation of a genuine concern for the world by conscientious people and especially young people, who naturally care for the environment. Its purpose is not to fulfill a role of true stewardship,
but rather to justify deconstruction of society and imposition of totalitarian rule. End of chapter.